Ah, welcome in. Welcome back to another episode of the Format Podcast. Today, we're jam-packed with guests for you. Uh, first, to talk all things NFL, we've got Jacksonville Jaguars beat writer for the Florida Times Union, John Reed. Next up, to discuss all things NBA, of course, is our official hoops analyst of the Format Podcast, Andy Noel. And finally, to talk college football, we've got host of the Always Irish Notre Dame Football Podcast, John but before we go ahead and get to all of that, I know you can't wait. We got to knock out the particulars. Um, I'm always available on social media. You can catch me on Twitter at Bruce F.A. Hope. That's at Bruce F.A. Hope. You can catch me on Instagram at V Format Podcast. That's at V Format Podcast. And of course, we're available via email, the format podcast at Outlook.com. You can reach me by any one of those means. You can tell me you love the show. We'd love that. You can tell me you hate the show. Wouldn't love that quite as much, but it lets me know you're listening. And you can suggest uh, topics that you want to discuss. You can suggest if you have ideas for segments for the show. You can tell me I'm the biggest idiot talking sports. Just tell me why. I don't care what you do. Just love the interaction. Now, if you like the show, make sure you head over to iTunes and give us that five-star rating. The more of those we get, the higher we rise in the rankings. Also, if you like the show here on YouTube, Make sure you click that subscribe button in the lower right corner of your screen and click that bell so that you can make sure you're alerted of any new content that we put out there for you. So with that, sit back, relax, and listen up to episode 78 of The Format. Joining us today on the Format Podcast to talk all things NFL, especially the Jacksonville Jaguars, is Jags beat writer for the Florida Times Union, John Reed. John, how you doing? It's been a long time. Thanks for uh, coming back on the show. Well, good to be on. Um, it's been a long season, obviously. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's, of course, start with with your wheelhouse, and that's the Jags. Um, we, we see that they've pretty much stripped down the team, done their best to get rid of all the big contracts. Um, they still they look for all intents and purposes like they are trying to be competitive, but it's not working out that way on the field. Uh, tell us, what are you hearing about what the Jags' plans for the future are? And, uh, you know, what are you seeing? Well, plans for the future is that they're trying to win games. I mean, at least that's what they're saying publicly. But, mm -hmm. uh, you, you, I mean, let's be facts are facts. They're rebuilding. They got a young roster, youngest roster in the league. And you, you, you build a football team in the off season. You and you and a, and a guy that 
that's most important person in that franchise to build that roster is your general manager. Um, between last season and up through the draft, they're, they're somewhere the decision was made that we're going to go with a um, different culture, number one, and we're going to go with a situation where we're going to build this football roster around young players. And when they made that decision, they made that decision based on um, that we needed to, to get a different attitude, so to speak, I think, that um, that we were going to move some of these veterans um, regardless of what their impact was or what their impact has been. Uh, we needed to clear some space off the cap. But my opinion of that is this, man. You uh, Nothing wrong with, with trying to change your culture. Nothing wrong with um, moving players who don't want to be in your franchise like a Yanni. The problem I have with the Jaguars is that you can't make that amount of – you can't have that many – you can't move that many veterans mm-hmm. and don't pay a price at the end. And mm-hmm. the price paying at the end is what we're seeing on the football field right now. You, you, you can't thrust these guys who – I mean, SEC is a great conference. But C.J. Henderson don't get matchups week to week in the SEC as he's getting right now. You know, you go up against Keenan Allen, he's a – He's a he's a he's a he's a baller. He's a mm-hmm. he's an all pro. He knows the tricks, and that's the difference between college and pros. These guys know the different type of ten, the tendencies or whatever to get themselves open, take advantage of your weaknesses that you haven't developed yet. And the problem right now is that I think the Jaguars got some great young players, but they're not ready to play that elevated role that they're being thrust upon right now. You know, I think Devon Hamilton is a good player. I mean, he was at Ohio State, and he had a good game this past um, Sunday against the Chargers. But he got nine games to go, man. (laughs) And when you're young, you can have a great game in week four and a terrible game in week five. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's when experience plays in. And this team right now do not have the experience to compete not only in the AFC South, but to com- compete with the rest of those teams on their schedule. This team cannot compete against Green Bay. Right. You know, I mean, that, you know, not having that experience is just – it's why this team is one in six. I mean, and – the issue I have with Dave Caldwell is, is that the general manager is that you, you have to have a plan. You, you, you can't, you, you can't just arbitrarily decide after six and 10 season that we need to do this. We need to do that. And don't have a, 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 a three year to four year plan. Because when you make one mistake, you know, they made two mistakes at quarterback. Whenever you make a mistake at quarterback, you probably put yourself probably about three to four years behind that back. eight ball, yeah. Mm-hmm. And not only has he made a mistake at quarterback, he's making mistakes with the overall way to rebuild. You know, you, you reload, you don't rebuild. I mean, when you go from a, I know mean, all the people talk about, you know, we always talk about that two seventeen team, where. If you make decisions based on a team that went to the AFC championship game and almost made it to the Super Bowl, 
then you should have been, and it doesn't matter about Tom Coughlin and all that. You should have had a plan in place that we got to start, and even during that season, we got an issue right now that we could lose Jalen, in which they mm-hmm. could have. Right. We, we got an issue at safety, which is why they drafted Ronnie Harrison. And you got to start plugging the dots two years before the dot become a problem. Right. Well, and let me, let me, hadn't done that. <laughs> let me interrupt you there. First, when we referred to that 2017 season where the Jags made the uh, AFC title game and we're really into the fourth quarter still in that game. Yep. I, I try to tell all these Jags fans that that was fool's goal. Deshaun mm-hmm. Watson was hurt that year. Andrew Luck was hurt that year. So the, the two best quarterbacks in the division were both hurt. And that mm-hmm. led to the Jags being able to win that division. Now, I had somebody tell me, well, those two quarterbacks being hurt didn't have anything to do with the Jags beating the Steelers twice that year. So I get it. And the Jags defense was great that year, but it was fool's gold overall. So to see Jags fans still hanging on to that is crazy to me. But um, that brings me around to the next point. Uh, You talk about the most important position in sports. You talk about the quarterback position you mentioned. Gardner Minshew, at least for right now, is clearly the guy the Jags may or may not be bad enough to get their hands on Justin Fields or Trevor Lawrence. The question is, if they're bad enough to do it, do they do it? Or do they maybe trade the pick and really try to build build the team up? Well, if they're in position to draft one or two, mm-hmm. that's the um, – that's the answer to Garner Minshew as far as being their future. You know, <laughs> his future is based on one one loss record this season. Mm-hmm. If they're in draftable position to be in a top three pick, mm-hmm. that, logic says they have to go get a quarterback. Mm-hmm. Garner Minshew, you know, you he, he's a six round pick. You know, he he. I mean, he had a great season coming in for for Nick Foles last mm-hmm. season. Um, but over his body of work, and he's had, he has now a body of work. Mm-hmm. He, he has last season, but he mm-hmm. has seven games under his belt. He's not the, – the book is on him. Mm-hmm. You blitz, you put a middle rush on him, and you close the pocket, and you force him to – to make him uncomfortable mm-hmm. and you rattle him and he's going to make the same mistakes, which, mm-hmm. which basically what he's done. You know, he, he, when he, when he scrambles, there's nothing wrong with scrambling, but when you scramble mm-hmm. and you don't look down and see those receivers getting open, that's a problem. And also is another problem that he has is, is that, um, you know, you 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 have to be accurate. I mean, you I mean, you gotta you, you gotta step into your throw. A lot of those throws that he's having problems with right now, when he's getting flushed out of the pocket, he's flushing. I mean, he's throwing off his back foot, and those are technique flaws. But every team from Miami, all the last five games they play, they're basically taking advantage of those same mistakes that he's making. I wouldn't say that's regression, but that's not franchise quarterback. If you look at that game last Sunday with with um, Los Angeles, you 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 can see Justin Abel, Abel, 
Justin he's Herbert, throwing yeah. the ball in a tight window, mm-hmm. a tight window throw. Mm-hmm. Garner doesn't have that ability. That's a born ability. I mm-hmm. mean, you, I mean, you you can throw that ball even when the when the when the receiver is covered and it's in there. And repeatedly, he ain't just did this Sunday. He's been doing it since he's been in the starting lineup. Mm-hmm. And those are the skills. And another thing is, you can't take away the. You know, he's six foot six. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Justin Herbert's a big guy. Yeah. Um. So, all right. So let let's move on from the Jags because it just it doesn't matter. Of fact, before we move on from the Jags, quickly, I I read before the season started the possibility of if they could get uh, uh, Trevor Lawrence in the draft, also trying to get Lord Dabo Sweeney out of Clemson to come coach the team. Have you heard anything like that or any possibility of changes in the coaching of the Jaguars? Well, he's under, I mean, he's being evaluated. I mean, if Marone, if this team goes three and 13, there's no way that he's going to keep his job. Mm-hmm. Do they have their eye on anyone? Well, I don't know. I mean, no, that'd be speculative at, at best. I, I don't think Dabo is going to leave Clemson to come to Jacksonville, <laughs> even if they get his quarterback. I just, I mean, I actually don't think the Jaguars would have enough money to pay him. Mm. <laughs> I don't think they can outspend Clemson to be. Yeah, honest. you got to you got to buy him out, then you still have to pay him. Yeah, but you know how much he's making though. He's making about. 12. I think he make nine million dollars a year or something like that. Marone ain't making nowhere near that. Mm. So that's the difference in the Jaguar franchise and the Dallas Cowboys too. Mm. I, I, I think that, um, and I say this very brief, but I think that Shot Khan has to get a lot. Of, he's got to get more involved with his franchise. I mean, even though something that was said today by Marone said that he speaks to Shot weekly, he spoke to him yesterday. So it gives this idea that he is in tune of what's going on but from a public standpoint and what this fan base is upset about is they feel that he's he he hadn't taken hold of his franchise you can't make promises at the end of seasons when it's five and eleven and six and ten see the same mistakes happen and no changes is made you know Mm -hmm. these guys that let's be honest and i said this to you earlier if you look at their schedule, they right now they, they got nine games to go. I would give them two potential winnable games, which would be Houston and many and, and Minnesota. After that, they're not gonna beat Baltimore. I mean, they're not gonna beat right. Green Bay, they're right. not gonna beat Tennessee, they're not mm-hmm. gonna beat any of those teams. So they got one win right now, and they won in six. The best this team can do is three and thirteen. He's gone five. I mean, since since two seventeen, he's gone five, eleven, six, and ten, and looks like he's facing a three and thirteen season. There's no if he remains coach, they're not going to be able to sell tickets in Jacksonville. It it, it and it's not going to matter if they get Trevor Lawrence or whoever. Whatever's going on here in Jacksonville with Coach Doug Marone. It's broken. It's not working. It's not. It, 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 it's time to move on. I mean, basically, it's time to move on now, you know. And this, whether Dabo or whoever, they got to go out and get a, 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 a coach that can relate to the younger players, that has a track record, 
more of an offensive minded situation mm-hmm. and get this franchise on track, you know. If not, the losing is going to continue. So it doesn't matter if you – I mean, Trevor Lawrence is a great quarterback, but if you look at that Clemson team, he's got weapons everywhere. All over the place. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yep. He, there's no weapons in Jacksonville. So right. they got to – I mean, it's still going to be – even if they get the number one, number two pick, it's still got to be pieces put in. And you don't want to have the same guy putting in the pieces who – didn't, he, he's been putting in the pieces since 2013 and it hadn't worked. Mm-hmm. So you got you, you to gotta make the tough decision for this franchise to move forward. Right. So, so let's move away from Jacksonville now. Let's talk about uh, another sorry, sorry team in the NFL, Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> they are about as bad as bad can be. They're bad on offense. They're historically bad on defense. They lost their quarterback, man. You can't, you can't say. Well, well, the problem with that argument is, and I've had this with a lot of people, even when they had their quarterback, they still weren't winning. They were just putting up more points and yards. So yeah. they, they still as bad as bad can be. What do you have to say about that? Is it is it time that Jerry Jones gives up running the entire show, gets a real GM in there? And is it also time? that he fires Mike McCarthy. I know they're only, uh, what, five, six games into the season, but it seems like he's already lost the team, or at the very least, do they fire Mike Nolan, defensive coordinator? What are you hearing out of Dallas? Well, this is, I say this about Dallas. Dallas is going through just like Jacksonville. The only difference is, is Dallas is is an exposed team. Everybody in the country either love them or hate them. Mm-hmm. Dallas hadn't made good personnel decisions in probably the last six, seven years, you know. And whatever Jerry's doing is not working. Just like Shot in Jacksonville is not working. But mm-hmm. they're America's team, and they get all this exposure, and all they do is let their fans down every year. Mm-hmm. They don't have a defense. That mm-hmm. That's the problem. They could score 30 points and still give up 40. Mm-hmm. The problem is they can't stop anybody. Another problem is, is that they pieces is in there that it they got pieces on that team that's talented, but that the pieces are not fitting. They haven't fit in years, <laughs> to be honest. Mm-hmm. And they just like another bad football team. Mm-hmm. But since they the Dallas Cowboys mm-hmm. and they yeah. get all this exposure, right? If it's always this hope that they're going to get to the Super Bowl and all that. And then when you look at the flaws of that roster, the decisions that's being made, the, um, you know, they got the money. They like the Yankees of the, of the NFL, but they spend their money in the wrong areas that need to be improved. They just bring in guys and they don't fit. How can the world, can you have a football team that's giving up probably – over 30-something points a game, over mm-hmm. 400 yards, and expect mm-hmm. to win. The, 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 the only fortunate thing about Dallas is is that they in an extremely weak division. Yeah. But when you can't score against the Washington team. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. bad. You know, problem, and just like you said, let me add this to you. It might be time for Jerry to give the team up and just allow his son to run the team, you know? Mm-hmm. I and agree. The glory is gone. I think Jerry right now is just in it for just the, 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 the love of the glory. I think, know? yeah, I was about to say he's an egomaniac, and that's really what it is. 
But let me ask you this with, with uh, Dallas, right? First thing we saw, even before he got hurt, was the, the prolonged uh, contract negotiations with Dak Prescott, i.e. he thought he was worth more than they did. And, and I told you about this since last season when you and I talked about it. But even beyond that, um, if they continue to be this bad and they are one of the worst teams in the league, do you think they get one of those young quarterbacks uh, out of the top two or three picks? Because if it was me, I would, then I wouldn't have to worry about the contract negotiations with Dak. Well, in, in essence, they might have helped themselves not giving him a, a full. Exactly. And, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, why would they not? If they, if, if they were to sit there and be at the number one pick, mm-hmm. I don't think there'd be no doubt whatsoever that they would pull that trigger and get Trevor Lawrence. I would take <laughs> Justin Fields, but that's a different argument. <laughs> I mean, either one is both of them great. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. But um, I, I think they would be foolish not to. Right. You know? I right. mean, we don't know what, to, what I mean. I, I mean, that Prescott is a great quarterback, you know, but come on, man, this is a performance-based business. Exactly. Off a, a, a major injury here. Mm-hmm. You know? Like Shannon Sharp likes to say, a lot of empty calories. You know, he's throwing the ball all over the yard and, and doing a whole lot, but it's not resulting in wins. So yeah, there's I, no I love really loss in the NFL. You don't have a lot. You don't have allegiance. <laughs> exactly, exactly. All right, so moving on from the Cowboys, we, we've talked a lot about the quarterback position today. And uh, let's be real. We, we are in an era where defense is pretty much legislated out. We've seen it in the NBA. We also see it in the NFL you know, the leagues don't want too much defense because to the lay fan, it's, it's not exciting. Um, so we're seeing offensive production almost like never before. We're seeing, for the most part, young quarterbacks really walk into the league and their coaches are bringing a lot of concepts that they ran in college with them, allowing them to be successful early. What do you think of all these young quarterbacks that are just coming in and doing it? Your Joe Burrows, your uh, – uh, 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 Justin Herbert that we talked about earlier, um, your Kyler Murray's, you know, we, we're seeing, of course, Lamar Jackson. We're seeing a lot of young quarterbacks really have much more success than we've ever seen so early in their careers before. What do you think about that? Where well, do you think the league is heading? I think if you're a fan you and you like offense and you, mm-hmm. you know, the guys putting the ball up 40 times a game or mm-hmm. more, then this is the league for you. For me, I'm an old school guy. I, I like seeing the running back get the handoff the two. I'm I with like you. to see defense. I'm I like to see the the um the cornerback use a little physicality and mm-hmm. don't get called for pass interference. Right. Just like the NBA, mm-hmm. you, I, you know, I'm a, scoring is great, but yep. hey, I used to like the Knicks used to mix it up with anyone in the physical play when they mm-hmm. played Jordan. Right. But that's the way we – this is the society that we live in now. Yeah, yeah. You have to put points on the board. You have to score. You have to make it exciting. And I think that's the era that we're in right now. And some of these quarter, I mean, the quarterbacks, are, I mean, they're they, they good. The kid in, yeah. in Los Angeles is a quality – he's a good quarterback. Joe Burrow can throw – make any throw, you know, mm-hmm. all that. But, you know – when you can't touch the receiver, you can't touch the receiver. You can't hit the quarterback. <laughs> Things get a whole lot easier, don't they? You can't. You can't tackle. You, <laughs> right. You, you right. Can't do this. So yeah. 
that's why they're they they putting that ball up forty something times mm-hmm. and scoring these you know thirty points, mm-hmm. thirty four averages, and all these kind of things. But to me, let me say that man, I just wish football could go back a little bit to the football of the eighties. I, I I won't even take it back to the seventies. Give me back the football of the eighties. Where the Lawrence Taylors and the, the defensive guys, and you will sit there with your popcorn on Monday night. You're gonna see some smash mouth. You're gonna see some good tackling. You're gonna see an offense that have to work to score. Yeah, you know, not just I mean, putting the ball up three times. Yeah, and yeah. Like 28 I, points. You know those kind of things. Give me my choice. Given my choice, I say 90s, early 2000s. You know, you see those Steelers defenses. You see the great Ravens defense, the greatest defense of all time, by the way. <laughs> but, um, you know, you know those. But, huh? I don't know about that. Those are old Pittsburgh Steelers teams. All right, we, we'll, we'll have this That's debate. Steel Curtain day. was something else back in the day. <laughs> we'll have this debate another day. But, I mean, <laughs> I, I look at it and I say one of the biggest uh, things that you would hear as argument to that, obviously the quote unquote player safety, which I don't believe the NFL really cares about as much as they say, but that's a different story. It's more the premise of you don't want star quarterbacks getting hurt. So you got to protect them because they are, they're a cash cow. So, you know, you, you don't want to be in a position where those guys are getting hurt and can't be on the field. So I, I get that, but um, John, uh, we'll go ahead and wrap it there uh, for, for this episode. Thanks so much for taking the time to to come in and uh, give us some insight on the Jags and talk to us about some NFL football. Appreciate it, man. Thanks a lot for having me on. All right. See you next time. You know who it is and you know what it is. When we talk basketball on the Format Podcast, you know who comes in to do it best. We got with us AAU coach and official format podcast basketball analyst, Andy Noel. Andy, what's up? And thanks for joining again, man. Bruce, always a pleasure, my man. All right. So um, we're, we're going we're gonna to get to some topics on a shorter NBA segment this time. We're not going to go all day like they're used to, but we're definitely going to hit some key points of this offseason. So the season is done. The Lakers are the champions. LeBron has number four. But let's move on from that. We are actually not going to talk LeBron James this time. Can you believe it? Ah, ah, (laughs) fooey. All right. So on on the player side, because we're going to talk a little bit of players and coaches today, number one, will Giannis Antetokounmpo, the Greek freak, force a trade at some time this season? If he's smart, he will. Things aren't going to get any better over there. And I'm not even – I mean, listen, it's, it's it's the new NBA landscape. And people are doing it. I think there's a gentleman way to do that if if they're smart, mm-hmm. right? There's a way that there's a way that everybody can walk away from this happy. You've got too many bad contracts. You've got Eric Bledsoe. Eric Bledsoe is probably the biggest issue there. Um, and you've got a bunch of pieces that don't necessarily work. When your best player, when your best player isn't necessarily the most skilled player, sometimes that causes some problems. And that's really what you're looking at. I, if I'm Milwaukee, I, I, I will look at who has the best package and say, okay, let's make a deal. So you know where I am on this. I'm kind of old school in the fact that I like to see an organization build around their star player. I like to see that star player keep hammering away until he can get through. And if he doesn't, he doesn't, right? But at the same time, in the ring culture we're in, if you don't win, then it greatly, exactly. uh, greatly denigrates your legacy. So. 
the thing is, Giannis has said publicly that he wants to stay in Milwaukee. He wants to win there. He's not trying to roll out and join up with a super team or anything like that. What do you think that says about his chances of leaving? Do you think maybe he's got his agents working it on the backside while he says what he needs to say to look good on the front? Look at the look on his face when his brother came, when his brother showed up with his, with his championship ring. Mm-hmm. That'll tell you everything you need to know. Fair enough. Um, moving on from the East to the West, the Clippers. Now, we know the Clippers were a major disappointment this year. Um, they were the team that I picked and a lot of others picked um, to get to the finals and win the championship just based off of what Kawhi Leonard had finished doing last year, the type of player he is, the type of roster they put together specifically designed to give LeBron James trouble. But obviously it never materialized. They got knocked out after blowing a 3-1 lead in the uh, conference semis to the Denver Nuggets. So the question now is, um, I heard Shaquille O'Neal, he's on the record. He's a Hall of Famer. He's a champion, a former MVP, and now an analyst of note who says that if the Clippers want to win, they need to get rid of Paul George and let Kawhi Leonard be the man. First issue with that is for me, you can't win in the modern NBA without multiple superstars. Of course, exception being Toronto last year, but let's be real, if Golden State was healthy, Toronto doesn't win that championship. Regardless, the title is a title. What do you think about Shaq's commentary about Paul George needing to go so Kawhi can be the man if the Clippers want to win a title? Um, big respect for Shaq always, right? Shaq is a, from my era, Shaq is a, is a beast on court. I, I, that take makes absolutely no sense. Um, Kawhi Leonard needs help, right? Kawhi Leonard, that, he proved it down the stretch. Um, you and I have talked about this before. Kawhi met, Leonard made a bunch of big noise and wasn't able to deliver down the stretch. Paul George wasn't the reason why he was missing that those mid-range shots. Paul George wasn't the reason why he wasn't getting his teammates involved. Paul George wasn't the reason why, you, you know, um, he wasn't able to deliver at when the game counted, right? Um, Paul George is a beneficiary, is, excuse me, benefits his game because it gives him the room that he needs to play that ISO game. What they really need is a Chris Paul slash Rajon Rondo type point guard, somebody that can settle the offense down and kind of say, hey, um, let me distribute. You'll get your ISO, you'll get your touches, but we need – everybody else has got to get involved, right, it, to to a degree, using an analogy. Um, you know, Scott – they need someone to be Scottie Pippen to Michael Jordan, mm-hmm. right, where although Kawhi is going to come out here and get his numbers, uh, you know, Scottie Pippen is going to be the guy that gets everybody else involved and keeps the floor balanced. They need that. I think Ty Lue also, with his cachet, he'll be able to add a a, a, a measure of of you know uh, uh, of balance in that offense as well. Um, you know, his, given his 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 uh, his experience with LeBron James and um, and uh, and sorry and Kawhi and uh, Kyrie Irving, um, but I, getting rid of Paul George solves nothing, right? It, because that productivity, who, who's going to make it up? Right. You know, there's 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 a lot of reasons why they lost to the Clippers. Kawhi, Kawhi, Paul George is one of them. Right. Uh, I forgot. What's their big man's name? Don't remember. Uh, Zubac. Exactly. Right. He, he you know how many bunnies he missed point blank 
layups he missed against Denver. Um, um, you know, Harrell, um, right? He just completely disappeared, right? Mm-hmm. Lou Williams completely disappeared. Mm-hmm. If all those things don't happen, we're, ha- we're having a different conversation. So, so making it a Paul George problem, to me, just seems like lazy analysis. Mm, fair enough. Um, so next, staying in the West and especially in the Pacific Division, what do you see Golden State doing this offseason? We're kind of hearing things about them possibly trading that number two pick. Obviously, we know it's been reported by, by multiple uh, reputable journalists that they have interest in Giannis. Um, what do you think is their plan? Golden State's in a pretty decent position. <laughs> so, because the reality is, so, so let's just look at it from, you know, from, from 10,000 feet up. No matter what happens at this point, their legacies are, are firm, right? Their legacies are established. They are who they are. Three championships in five attempts. Um, dominant five-year run. They've done a lot. Now, Let's just say Milwaukee decides, okay, we're not going to be able to keep this guy, resign him. We got moves to make. They package that pick with Andrew Wiggins and Giannis heads over there and it's going to be a nightmare in the West. Mm-hmm. They keep um, their pick. Go ahead. No, that that's, that is really a scary thought. Cause you know, as we've talked about, you have the, the floor being spread by Stephen Clay, you know, you have, the playmaking duties that Giannis is doing in Milwaukee taken up by Draymond. So Giannis, let's say he gets to Golden State, has nothing to do but lower his head and go and dunk on everything moving. And in an open space, off of switches. Right. And then on the defensive end, he can play a lot of help defense. It, It would be scary for a lot of other teams in the West. I'm not sure they want to see that if he gets out there. You've got an athletic, you've got an athletic, an athletic, rim protector who can essentially get from end to end in about six to six was six to 10 steps, something of that nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and can dunk and, and has arms as long as, you know, the Milky way. So it's, if they do that, that's one thing. If they get James Weissman, who I've heard over the weekend is, is, is being viewed as a more athletic David Robinson. <laughs> Yeah, but, but listen, people say a lot of things because David Robinson was extremely athletic. So to say that, that's really iffy. I, I, I saw I saw a post online that said like 72% of basketball thing, fans think DeMar DeRozan was better than Joe Dumas. So I don't I, I don't believe I, I, a whole lot of what no, I No, 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 no. So so just just uh, just in case I, I should have clar- I should have qualified that I was listening to NBA radio and I was listening to Sam Mitchell. Sam Mitchell, the ex-coach and NBA yep. analysis. Listen, yep. I don't know. How it's it's and and not in rank, but in terms of guys who I listen to for their mm-hmm. basketball analysis, mm-hmm. Rick Buecher, Sam Mitchell, Doug Gottlieb, um, maybe another maybe another two. So when Sam Mitchell said, he when I'm and I'm quoting him, he's a slightly more athletic David Robinson mm-hmm. and taller. I said, if Golden State grabs him, and he's only and he if he's only blocking shots, grabbing rebounds, and setting picks, they're going to be a dominant team. Mm. Um, um, so it's 
outside of that, and, and the other option is drafting a Lamelo for uh, grabbing a Lamelo uh, ball for. Um, he doesn't fit. He needs the ball. No, all no, the time. F- for right. the Knicks. Oh, okay, and, okay. And 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 grabbing Mitchell Robinson off of off of their hands, right? Uh, off of the Knicks' hands, and maybe somebody else because the Knicks got like 13, 14, maybe eighteen power forwards, right? <laughs> right so right. so. Um, the 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 Golden State Warriors are in pretty decent position, right? In terms of wh- what options they can go in, and I think given the amount of time that everybody had to rest, I think they I think they are depending on and even if they just stand pat and grab that and grab that pick, they're in good shape, right? Um, they got length, they got versatility. Uh, oh, another one that I, I I'm thinking about as well is trading that pick for. Um, for uh, um, for the Holiday kid that, that used to play for them, I forgot what his name is. Might have been not, not Justin Holiday, the other Holiday. Um, yes, yeah, actually Justin Holiday, Justin Holiday and Miles Turner. They get Justin Holiday and Miles Turner. That is a nightmare for the league, right? That gives them again versatility, shot blocking, and athleticism. So Golden State's in a pretty decent position. Fair enough. Um... On the coaching side, there's been some interesting hires. One I thought was pretty interesting was the Pelicans uh, getting Stan Van Gundy. And that comes to me with a few questions. Number one, is he a coach with his old school mentality? Can he connect with younger players? Um, That old school vibe might not resonate the same way, even though we know that he knows his basketball. Uh, what, What do you think about that? So I've heard, I was listening to, and I read a couple of articles on that hire. And actually, initially, he actually wasn't all that gung-ho about, the, about taking the job. Um, he was really cavalier and, 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 and really kind of blasé about taking it. Um, so I think he did some thinking. I'm not necessarily one of the biggest JV uh, Stan Van Gundy fans. Um, but I, I do know that he knows his basketball. And I think the move is smart for the organization because it gives them an opportunity, especially for Zion, to understand how to play the game, right? To be able to be taught about playing the game by one of the, one of the game's thinkers, right? Because uh, oftentimes people, this gets, this gets discounted and dismissed, but what makes certain players really good is the coaching they had at their fundamental stage, right? The early parts of their life who can teach them a basketball philosophy and, and help them understand the game and, and, and at a cerebral level, which makes playing, playing the game physically more easy. Um, so I think, I think just from a Zion standpoint alone, I think this is a good move. Um, but time will tell, right? He's going to make them play defense. He's going to make them, they, they will play hard. Right. They 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 will they will respect him and you will see a level of discipline that probably before. The only thing I'm thinking about, all that makes sense, but on an offensive side in terms of a player like Lonzo Ball, who still is not great at actually running an offense, his whole thing is get up the floor quick, get the ball out of his hands quickly, you know, outlet up the floor. He doesn't he still is not you know, very good in terms of what he can do or can't do in the half court sets. How do you think he's going to be able to deal with a coach like Stan Van Gundy? So at this point, he doesn't really have a choice. I think he's in a contract here, as a matter of fact. He's going to have to figure it out, right? Um, I think one of the things with Lonzo, if you analyze his game, you'll see that the thing about him, what made him more 
effective in college uh, for the one year he played in college as well in high school, he can get the ball up pretty quickly. Right? He can really move and he can get the he can make things happen really quickly. He's a good transition player. In today's space and space, I'm sorry, pace and space environment. Um, that works out really nicely. The problem is he can't really penetrate from the three-point line down. He can't really get into the lane and create. Um, and I would imagine that he's working on that, but I also can can imagine that, you know, Stan is going to figure out from an offensive standpoint how to position him the best, right? Don't forget, Stan Van Gundy was getting Hedo Turkoglu shots, right, um, when he was down in Miami, right? They were playing a four, uh, excuse me, a four-out, you know, one in offense uh, with, with Dwight Howard manning the middle. And that team was, Orlando. that team was incredible. Yeah. yeah. What did I say? Sorry. Miami. In Orlando. Right. Um, so, you know, he, he can get creative offensively, right? He can get guys some shot. Rashad Lewis, right? Those, those guys, he was get he can, he can develop players, especially with, with what he has, but guys have got to do their parts as well. I think Lonzo doesn't have a choice but to buy in. He's in a contract year, and the and the inconsistency that has been consistent in his in in his play ever since he got into the league is glaring. He's got no choice. Fair enough. Um, second interesting coaching hire: the Pacers hired Raptors assistant Nick uh, Bjorkren. Now. They say proximity to excellence doesn't necessarily mean excellence. We know that Nick Nurse is an outstanding coach. The question is, do we know anything about this guy, Bjorkgren, and do we think that he's going to be any better than Nate, Mc, Nate McMillan as Pacers nah. head coach? And what, I guess the biggest question is, are they going to be good enough to try and keep Oladipo there? I think, I think Oladipo, so, so I've heard this as well. Ola, the hope is Oladipo's worth has his his value has decreased quite a bit. Right now, he's starting to become viewed as the off injured off mm-hmm. injured player, mm-hmm. right? Um, who who is expecting a big payday? Um, af, you know, despite not necessarily having the resume to 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 warrant that. Um, but I can't really tell what that move is about, right? Nate McMillan essentially. You know, turned you know was 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 a miracle worker, especially in the bubble. Given you know how many players that that they had lost, right? Uh, you know, they were they they really eked it out, right? Um, eked out all of that success, and then they fired him. So I don't know what they're trying to do. Um, like I said, I, I I can't tell whether it's a rebuild or not because. They they're not in a position to try to recapture the same magic that Toronto did when Nick Nurse got there. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's a that that's a head scratcher as far as I'm concerned. I don't really have, I can't tell you definitively what I think. I don't know this guy. Um, I, I don't. They don't necessarily have the pieces to to kind of make a run just yet. They're not even established. I don't even know. I, I guess culturally they're still kind of putting culture together. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't really have an answer to be to be completely honest. Right. So uh, last uh, last one in this extended uh, coaching hire session. Um, obviously we got to touch on this. Clippers let Doc Rivers go, and they have hired Teron Liu, who is his top assistant. And we know Teron Liu has a championship as a head coach of the, the Cleveland Cavs at LeBron James. Um, so some questions there. Number one. Is Ty Lue going to be able to get the Clippers away from all that uh, ISO heavy offense and really get the team to buy into more ball movement? 
And two, do we see him be able, being able to hold Kawhi Leonard more accountable in order to quell some of that locker room dissension that's been reported with the Clippers? Uh, I, I think yes across the board. So before even going to Cleveland the first time, he, he was viewed as the next guy up. So he was held in pretty high esteem, right, uh, as far as having a coaching mind. Uh, I've also heard that he has a tendency to not, um, not demonstrate his coaching knowledge um, to, the, to the average person and to the media to the degree that he actually has one. So I'm, look, I, think, I think given what we've heard thus far, I think you will see a change in in the Clippers. I think I think the problem with Doc was Doc probably wanted to be more friends with everybody than wanted to be a coach. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes you've got to really be a little bit of a jerk. And from my understanding, I've heard that. Um, Ty Lu is willing to be that jerk and has and has been that jerk a few times. Um, now, the one blemish that I would assume that we have to look out for is him having those those anxiety issues while he was coaching LeBron. You know, right before LeBron, you know, right before he left, before LeBron left Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I can imagine how frustrating it might have been to have to, you know, have to deal with those circumstances and all of the, you know, all of the, you know, championship or bust expectations every, every season and every game is the, you know, is is essentially game seven. So um, I think that's probably in my mind, probably the only thing that, that I would be concerned about. Other than that, I think he has the respect. Uh, He's won some championships um, as a player and as, as a coach. So you have to, tip your hat from an, from an accolades and, and, and respect perspective. Um, but I think you'll have their ear. Fair enough. So uh, let's wrap up the segment with this. We're going to do something we call here on the format podcast, buzzer beater. And along the lines of this particular topic, I'm going to give you a name and you're going to tell me in five seconds or less, what's your thought on it. Got it. Go for it, bro. All right. First name, <laughs> doc rivers. Uh, interesting season. Uh, we'll do, we'll have a, a very interesting season. All right. Second thought, second name, sorry. Steve Nash. Steve Nash is going to also have an interesting season, but I believe he'll be in coach of the year contention. Dead wrong. I think he's going to have big problems with Kyrie Irving. Um, yeah, okay. Name you number three. Fair um. enough. <laughs> number three, Tom Thibodeau. New coach of the Knicks. It uh, depends on who they get. I believe they're going to get Fred Van Vliet. Fred Van Vliet. Um, I think they're going to be in a rebuilding year, but I think they'll be doing culture, culture, culture. I've also heard there's a possibility that Chris Paul ends up there. If Chris Paul ends up there, Carmelo Anthony's coming over there. It's going to be a really. They will at least have the. They'll at least have the buzz in New York City again. Shot clock violation. <laughs> All right. Um, finally, Billy Donovan, new coach of the Bulls. Interest. That's an interesting one. I, I've thought about that one a few times. Um, 
I think I think they're going to have a pretty mediocre year, and they're going to have to make some changes um, uh, as far as personnel is concerned. Um, There's a mismatch mismatch uh, um, um, roster. Fair enough. A bunch of players that don't play well together. Good stuff. Good stuff, Andy. So thank you so much for uh, joining the format, man. I appreciate it. Next you time, it. stick to five seconds. <laughs> I don't have a clock in front of me. Sorry about that. All right, boss. Hey, man, you have a good one. Thanks for joining. Appreciate you. All right. Joining us for our uh, college football segment of the Format Podcast today, uh, you know him if you've listened to this show before. He is the host of the Always Irish Notre Dame Football Podcast, here to talk some Notre Dame and other college football teams. It is John Kennedy. John, thanks for joining the show. Always nice to be with you, Bruce. Absolutely. So let's get right to it, and you know where we're going to start. You know, um, Notre Dame, uh, number four in the nation, just beat Pitt 45-3 at Pitt over the weekend. Um, some things kind of to, to look into from this game. Obviously, you see a 45-3 final score, and you're saying to yourself, well, that looked impressive. But if you watch the game, like every other game, there are pluses, there are minuses, things to like, things to dislike. Um, let's start with the things that maybe we didn't like so much. And that was, number one, uh, Pitt having the number one uh, run defense in the country coming into the game. Notre Dame having the number seven rushing offense in the country coming into the game. Something had to give. And Pitt was really able to control that vaunted Notre Dame rushing attack. Um, What do you say about that? Of course, one of your biggest pet peeves listening to your show is if you're Notre Dame, you have one of the best offensive lines in the country, if not the best offensive line in the country, you have to be able to show it against the better teams and the better defenses. Where are you on what you saw on Saturday? You know, I, I was struggling with this. I was I was putting together my own show, and I was struggling with how to approach that topic. Um, they were the Pitt was the number one rushing defense. We ended up with 115 rushing yards, which is almost double what they give up on average per week. So if you look at it that way, it's decent. I would have felt better 150, 160, 170. At the same time, the argument against that is with Pitt's defense, they're very aggressive. They stack the box. They bring safeties down to help with with the run. And the passing game's more available, and it's something that we utilized more this week. Would I have loved to see them run it for more? Yes. But it's hard to complain when you put up 45 points at the end. So I can see that both ways. I, a part of me says what you said. Okay, they're the number one rushing defense, but we're supposed to have this great offensive line. We're tuning it up for Clemson in two weeks. Mm-hmm. I would have liked to see more raw yardage. Now, here's the one thing I do really like, though. Last year, Notre Dame was 65th in the country in gaining first downs on third and fourth and short. That was a big problem last year. This year so far, they're up to fifth. So they're improving on that a lot and had like a half dozen of them in this game. I do think that bodes well moving forward. Right. Um, So something you touched on there, obviously the running game struggled in comparison to what they have been doing earlier in the season. But we did see the finally the emergence of the passing game. 
Uh, Ian Book threw for 312 yards, three touchdowns. Um, we finally got a Ben Skoranek, uh, the uh, grad transfer from Northwestern, citing two catches for 107 yards, two touchdowns, big plays all over the place from him. And of course, we saw something that you've really been, you know, kind of on the soapbox about numerous targets to freshman phenom tight end Michael Mayer. I think they targeted him eight times. He got five catches for 73 yards and a touchdown out of it. How do you feel about the uh, passing game from Notre Dame after this? I feel better, but at the same time, we were starting from near nothing after Louisville. So feeling better, it's a judge of where you're feeling better from. I mean, it was almost starting from scratch. The passing game, is, it's just going to be an ongoing struggle. Now Notre Dame's down. Their most, most dynamic athletic guy, Austin, with the re-injury to his foot, he was the most athletic, dynamic guy we had. Mm -hmm. uh, your speed guy, Lindsey, comes up lame with the hamstring lately. Mm -hmm. So now you're down, your most athletic, gifted guy, and your speed guy. Everybody else just has to pick up the pieces. Mm -hmm. If Ben Skaronik is going to become your go-to guy, so be it, because beggars can't be choosers at this point. This is going to be a work in progress the whole year. It's not ideal, but you got to grow from somewhere. And at least we saw some positive trajectory this week because you're going to need a passing game to compete with Clemson in two weeks. Right. So it was encouraging, but it's still a work in progress. And you could tell little things, Bruce. Timing's still off on some of these routes. Book struggles to see some guys or, or throw the ball before they make their break. Mm -hmm. Little nuances that come with a dynamic passing game, we're still working on. Now I almost feel like it's a reset. You know, Lindsay's out. Yeah. What you got, now you just got to put them in a position to be their best. It ain't Alabama skill talent, it ain't Ohio State skill talent. Mm -hmm. Take what we do have and make it work enough to be able to do what you need to do. And the first thing I would do is, like you said, you got two tight ends that can catch any ball that's anywhere near them in Tommy Tremble and freshman Michael Mayer. Those guys should be getting six to eight targets each. Mm -hmm. Crossers over the middle, drag routes, up the seam, you name it. Those guys are gonna have to become de facto receivers to me while we work this out. Fair enough. Um, so I guess that that gets us kind of to the next point and arguably the biggest point, something you and I have been talking about since the offseason. We've got Notre Dame has uh, Georgia Tech upcoming this week and then the big matchup on the November 7th with Clemson at Notre Dame. And the question again is what we've seen so far, will it be enough? And will it be enough against Clemson in the context of when I spoke to Pete Sampson, uh, athletic uh, Notre Dame beat writer, I got the idea from him that kind of while Clemson is still the class of the ACC, they weren't quite as loaded as they've been in the past, specifically two years ago when they beat Notre Dame 30-3 to in the Cotton Bowl in the playoff, and they had four D linemen in that, in that front seven that went on to play in the NFL. They don't quite have that level of talent now, they haven't necessarily played the toughest schedule yet, but they have looked really, really impressive so far. From what we've seen, do we think it's going to be enough for Notre Dame to be able to stay close, if not pull up, 
pull off the upset. Is this kind of going to be along the lines of what we saw at Georgia last year? Is this finally the game where Notre Dame gets over the hump? I think that's your big question. And, and, and you know, it's kind, of, it's kind of lame, but not at the same time, that every game we've had so far, the eye was always on Clemson the whole mm-hmm, time. Mm-hmm. You're watching those games. We're playing lesser opponents. And, and everybody's mind is, how is this going to translate on November 7th when we play Clemson? Mm-hmm. They may be a bit more vulnerable on the defensive side of the ball than when we played them in 2018. And I think you're seeing some of that. You know, even Syracuse scored three touchdowns against Clemson. Well, what did we do against them in 2018? We had three points, you know? So you look at it that way. But every Notre Dame fan is going to be sitting there with that anxious anxiety. It's the measuring stick. Have we closed the gap at all from 2018 when we played this team? Same quarterback, same coach, same systems. Have we closed the gap? It would be hard for me not to think we can play defense against them. My question is, could this offense do enough to keep them off balance and honest to be able to put up a decent amount of points? I would be bitterly disappointed if our defense wasn't able to at least keep things under control against Clemson and not give up, you know, 38 points, something like that. Um, Offensively, I'm really interested, Bruce. Are we going to be able to run the ball at all against them? Are we going to be able to throw the ball? What's Ian Book going to look like in that big moment? These are all things that have haunted Notre Dame fans in every big game the last handful of years. Yeah. So I don't know how much confidence there's going to be, but I know I'm going to be sitting there like, please just let this be the one where we show that we're capable of more. Well, I tell you what, I guess you should hearken back to 2012 when Mark May said Notre Dame's not even going to get off the bus in Norman. And they went in and beat Oklahoma, I believe, 30 to 13 when Oklahoma was heavily favored. See, the problem with with what you just said is – example of that was 2012 <laughs> right right years like that's the problem with this yeah. discussion to me that was brian kelly's most impressive win on, i agree undefeated at night everything on the line good team mm-hmm. that's the problem it's been since then since we've done it and so every time these big games come up all of nd nation gets kind of tight and nervous is this going to be the one where we show we can hang or not? Right. So, I, and, and the other thing that stinks, Bruce, is you finally get Clemson at home, and now nobody can even go to make it a loud environment or do any of that stuff. Right. So that's really unfortunate that, that we catch them home and you don't get that perceived home field advantage or anything. So, But this is – I saw – I said on my show last week, I love that they're the number one team. When you play the number one team, it's the purest gauge of where you're at you could possibly have. Mm-hmm. The best and see where we stack up against number one. Whether it's good, bad, or ugly, it's the purest test that tells you exactly where you're at. And I'm very much looking forward to it. I hear you. So let's move off of Notre Dame football. Um, you are, you live in Big Ten country. Um, 
Obviously, the Big Ten started its season this past weekend. How did it feel for you to have the Big Ten back? Bruce, I got to admit something to you, man. It's nice to have them back. Mm -hmm. I really did start missing it. Yep. Um, and, and maybe some of it is because I am right in Chicago and Big Ten area. Mm -hmm. And it's not that I miss it because I like it. It's that I miss rooting against them. <laughs> That's a part of my college football experience is hate watching Michigan, you know, and, and watching what Ohio State does and mm -hmm. that 11 a.m. Big Ten slot every week. Mm -hmm. So I really did miss it. It's good to have them back. There's no doubt about it. It's good for the sport that they're back. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, you know, I think we saw some interesting stuff week one, starting with Wisconsin's freshman quarterback. Yeah. He, perfect and he's a mm -hmm. freshman right five touchdowns yeah it's illinois but for a freshman he was 20 of 21 five touchdowns and this is wisconsin not ohio state with all the skill talent that impressed the hell out of me mm -hmm. ohio state does what ohio state does that's no surprise to anybody they're the machine that keeps rolling I expected more out of Minnesota playing Michigan. I really yeah. did. They can't did punt or kick or do anything. Yeah, I was I was gonna get to that. Um, so being that you you touched on that, now let's take off your Michigan hater hat and let's put your college football analyst hat on. Um, how does Michigan look to you? And I know it's very early, it's one game. And the thing is it's hard to tell because we've seen Michigan look pretty good for stretches consistently through the hardball era, but then they get smoked by the Buckeyes and then subsequently lose to whoever they play in the bowl game after that. What did yeah. you think of, of what you saw from Michigan? I thought it was a really good start for them. You know, taking my hatred for rivalry hatred away. Mm -hmm. It looked better than I was expecting overall. Um, I think with them – there are some similarities to Notre Dame the last handful of years with Notre Dame and Michigan, where they usually handle the teams they have more talent than. And then when they get matched up in the one or two games a year with equal or better talent, they struggle. Michigan and Notre Dame have both done that a lot in the last handful of years, even swapping losses with each other in that regard. Um, I think a lot of it's going to have to do with how that quarterback progresses. He's a, he's a good physical talent. He can run. He's got a strong arm. Right. He's not always the most accurate. Mm -hmm. But I think that's going to be a big determining factor in how they go or don't go. But it's hard not to like the way they started. Uh, it, it started out sharper better than I thought with this first game result. But – Minnesota was a lot worse than I was expecting them to look too. So mm -hmm. maybe give it a few more weeks to get a better gauge. Um, but I, I was impressed with them. It was a really solid start. I'm sure they're thrilled. It was a really good start. Okay. And uh, so continuing with the Big Ten, um, Ohio State, after one week, jumps Notre Dame in the polls. Now, we know how good Ohio State is. We know how yep. much talent they have. But after one game, they jump. 5-0 and Notre Dame, how, how do, not even as a Notre Dame fan, how do you take that? Does that seem reasonable to you? 
Did they look Here's, that much better after one week? Or I, are I you think the Louisville game kind of rearing its ugly head in terms no, of things here? I think there's a couple things in play here. Here's how I look at this as the Notre Dame guy. In practicality, them jumping us after one week really has little to no big picture consequences. Notre Dame and Clemson are going to take care of that situation in a few weeks no matter what. Mm-hmm. Maybe take care of it again in the ACC title game. Mm-hmm. In practical action, I don't think that ranking movement means much. Philosophically and perceptually, I just think it's quite the stark picture of how Notre Dame is perceived versus how Ohio State's perceived. They're getting the benefit of the doubt off their history, how good they are year in, year out. Mm-hmm. Dame's not, and all it took is one week. And forget Notre Dame's 5-0 and body of work. Mm-hmm. It tells you where people are in their minds about these two programs. Ohio State's tried, trusted, true, good again, and they're up there. Listen, Bruce, there's no Notre Dame fan that, that could say, if we played Ohio State, I think Notre Dame's better right now. Right. You right. just can't say that. What's hard about it is the 5-0 and body of work, and then they just show up and they're instantly ahead of us. I, I think that's the dynamic people are struggling with. Mm-hmm. No way in good faith I can tell you I think Notre Dame's better than that. No. I agree. I but agree. I thought maybe it might take two weeks for them to jump us, not right away. Mm-hmm. But the overall rankings, it's not going to matter. Notre Dame's playing for the ACC's playoff spot this year. So Notre Dame and Clemson are going to take care of that. It's more of a perceptual thing of people's buy-in and trust level of Ohio State and not of Notre Dame for the reasons we talk about all the time. People just don't trust Notre Dame. Fair enough. So let's, let's finally bring it down to the SEC because as much as I'm not an SEC guy, you can't talk college football without talking them. Let's be realistic here. So what I thought was interesting was Nick Saban's comments uh, this week – on defense not being able to win ball games anymore. Do you think that's testament to the changes that we're seeing in terms of the huge drop-off in the defense in the SEC, which, you know, we get it, we hear it year in and year out. We hear all the propaganda. They're the closest thing to the NFL, and they play so much defense down south, and you're not seeing that this year. So is that a preemptive strike to defend his conference or defend his program? Or do you think he really believes that the way the rules are and the way the game is played now that you can't win with defense anymore? Well, now, wait a second, because now you're flipping the script on me because I was going to ask you, the guy living down in SEC territory, right. what is happening with SEC defenses? I have no idea. I'm, I'm trying to figure out, are the defenses worse? Or is the SEC offensively coaching-wise finally catching up right. to the rest of the country? I mean, you have Lane Kiffin, you have Mike Leach, so you ha- you have Jimbo Fisher. You yeah. have some guys who have, you know, explosive offensive ability given the talent. But you, I really have no idea what's kind of gone on with the explosion of yeah. offensive production in this conference. And, like, and I, I, can't figure, I can't figure out whether this is COVID. We all didn't have our normal practice, so mm-hmm. aren't as tight as they normal. <laughs> are or is this truly a philosophical shift to more wide open offense 
even in that conference that used to be known as hard, physical, tough, mm -hmm. deep, running the ball. And maybe the reality is it's a blend of a little bit of all of that, where the rules benefit offenses now. The way all of college football is going, it benefits scoring points and, and all that. Mm -hmm. And maybe with COVID, everybody's not as tight defensively because they weren't able to hit all summer. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a, a blend of all those things. But especially when you, you're used to seeing that in the Big 12 where they score 70 points. Mm -hmm. Once you start seeing that happen in the SEC, and even with the good teams in the SEC, with Alabama giving up in the mid-40s the other week, mm -hmm. I am not used to this. And that yeah. was the thing I was going to ask you is, <laughs> a philosophical shift towards a more wide-open offense, or, or what? Well, you know, historically in the SEC, for the most part, Florida's really been the only team that was willing to play that kind of style from Coach Spurrier with the run and gun, uh, excuse me, the fun and gun, you know, five receiver sets and all that. And then you had Urban Meyer come and he plays a kind of wide open style. But for the most part, that's not something you've seen in this part of the country, in this college football conference. It's There's been a lot of three yards in a cloud of dust. Like, look at it. LSU has had the same talent level as Alabama and Georgia for years. But the one year they decide to open up offensively and come into the modern era, they set all types of records. Their quarterback wins the Heisman, goes number one overall. They win a national championship, 14, 15 and 0. So I, I don't know if there's been a philosophical shift. Like, like I did say, you know, you have some coaches that are more offensive minded now. Um, of course, you still have uh, Sarkeesian is the OC at Bama. You have uh, uh, Lane Kiffin, the head coach at Ole Miss. You have Mike Leach, head coach at, uh, I want to say, Mississippi State. So you have some guys that are innovative offensive minds. But in general, I, I do find it interesting because despite that, the SEC has held to a certain identity for so long. And it's very interesting. And I'm just... I'm really on the fence as to whether or not Saban's commentary was kind of a defense of his conference and what we're seeing, or does he really believe what he's saying? Yeah, but like, but even Saban, uh, he's opening it up more. I mean, he's got all the toys to play with. I mean, yeah. the Waddle's a huge loss. Mm -hmm. But over the years, he's starting to open it up more. So I think maybe that's just the way things are going. And, He's figuring we're going to score anyways. Why take five minutes? We'll just throw it down there. I don't know. Mm -hmm. But you know what else this, this broader scope conversation makes me think about is with the point totals higher than they've ever been, mm -hmm. it's more impressive what Notre Dame's defense has done. They are number one in the country of power five teams that have played more than one game in points allowed. They're giving up under 10 points a game. And in 2020, that's damn hard to do against anybody. Mm -hmm. Say it hasn't been the best competition. Right. Everybody's putting up points. You know, you're right. not good anymore to throw the ball all over. Right. So it, it's a broader scope conversation. But early this year, I'm sitting there looking at these SEC scores going, is this the Big 12? What <laughs> yeah. Here? And, and it, and it, I think the, the reality is probably a combination of all the factors we talked about. Bulls mm -hmm. benefit offense. You know, they're throwing it all over with the point totals. You got COVID, the defenses aren't hitting. I don't know, but, but it's, it just seems to be the trend. I'll be interested to see next year if this continues 
or if we have more of a normal spring summer, if it tightens back up a little bit, teams are able to hit again, tackling's crisper. I don't know, but it, that SEC being wide open is new to me. I'm not used to it. No, it, it definitely looks different. But um, John, you know, thank you for your time joining the Format Podcast. We'll leave it there. Uh, appreciate you and uh, definitely looking will, out. Hey, we will talk either before or after Clemson. Absolutely. And I, you might want it before so you don't have to deal with me after. I don't. <laughs> but, right. but we will have to reconnect no matter what happens. We got to reconnect on that so we could break it down. It's the purest test you'll ever have of where you are when you play number one. And I'm really excited. Even if it goes bad, I'm excited because then at least I know right where we stand against the best. And that's a healthy test for your program. I embrace it. Absolutely. All right, John. Well, thanks. You have a good one. And uh, we'll talk again soon. You as well. Anytime, Bruce. Thanks.